This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. John chapter 12. Good morning to you all and uh, morning to those uh, again who are not with us today in person, wherever you may be. Welcome to any who are visiting with us today. It's our hope and prayer. It's been that uh, the Lord would minister to you. Um, you know that in the historic church calendar, this is uh, referred to as Palm Sunday, also known as Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Um, it, you know, it's uh, one of very few uh, stories that are accounted for in each of the four gospel accounts. So it must be important if uh, it's been written up in each of the four Gospels. This morning, we will look at primarily John's Gospel's uh, presentation of, of his arrival into Jerusalem, and that's in John chapter 12. You'll find that in the Pew Bibles, if you need to use one of those, uh, on page 899, John chapter 12, beginning at verse 12. I'll also be referring to uh, Matthew's a version of it as well. John 12 and verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, he's talking about the Passover feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies... It bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. 
This ends the reading of God's word. I pray he would bless it to your hearts. Let's uh, pray one more time. Lord, our hearts need your spirit's work to be affected in a divine way, Lord, in a, in a genuine manner by the, your word, and we pray that you would in your mercy and grace look down upon us and wherever we may be listening in, Lord, and cause this word to have divine effects in our hearts. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, this account uh, that we have before us, this story, I think is an example, a very clear and profound example of what has been called heat without light or zeal without understanding. This is the very kind of thing that maybe Paul had in mind, the apostle, when he wrote to the church at Rome, uh, and he speaks about his fellow Jews, and he says in Romans 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. How so? For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, that is the righteousness that comes from God by faith and seeking to establish their own, that is through obedience to the law, they did not submit to God's righteousness, God's gift of righteousness through faith in Christ. And, well, that's what you see here. I mean, that's exactly what was happening <clears throat> on that, what we call Palm Sunday. Zeal without light, heat without light, zeal without understanding. It was a massive case of a mistaken identity of who Jesus truly is and what he came to do. It's essential to have straight in our mind who, who Jesus of Nazareth is if we are to believe in him with saving faith. The question he asked the disciples is still really the question, isn't it? Who do you say that I am? Never mind what other people say or what they think. Who do you say that I am? Because you're... Your answer to that question will be the basis of your expectations for who Christ is and will be to you in this life. And if you had it wrong, you're going to be disappointed, both in this life and in the next. So who is the Jesus that you believe in? And to understand how this was a case of, of zeal without understanding, we need to appreciate all the events surrounding that day <clears throat> a bit. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. This was without a doubt his greatest work, the greatest sign miracle. It is without a doubt a massive demonstration and proof that he is truly the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And excitement over this, you can imagine, was, was starting to build up and it was spreading all over the place. Quickly, people went out to Bethany. Uh, which was a little hamlet not far out of Jerusalem. They wanted to see Lazarus, <laughs> to look at this man whom Jesus raised from the dead with their own eyes, and they wanted to see Jesus as well. And there was a great unrest among the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. They felt like they were losing control. In chapter 11, uh, verse 53, we're told they hatched a plot to kill Jesus. So they had already agreed, we need to kill this man. 
Uh, but they did not want all that to happen during the Passover. They feared a great riot. Jesus was very popular. Passover had hundreds of thousands of pilgrims crowding the city. And so they planned to arrest him. Verse 57 of chapter 11, it says that they told people, if anyone tells us where he is, please tell us so we can arrest him. Then in chapter 12, verse 10, they went so far as, as, as hatching a plot to kill Lazarus. Imagine that. What hardness of heart. This poor man who was raised from the dead. They want to put him right back. <laughs> of course, they didn't believe he had been raised from the dead. And so this is what was happening. And doubtless, many people were aware. I'm talking about many of the crowds were aware of all this stuff in the background. Would Jesus dare to come into Jerusalem during the Passover knowing there's a price on his head? Knowing that there's a plot against him? What's going to happen? How's it going to go down? What will, this, what will the leaders do? That was the buzz, you see. And so Passover, what a moment. We just talked last week from the book of Acts. That these great feasts had hundreds of thousands of pilgrims there. And Passover was the great feast. And like all great feasts, but especially Passover, it was a time of nationalistic fervor. Always right, because we have to do our feasts under the thumb of Rome. There it was, the castle of Antonia, and the Roman soldiers watching over all that they do. So Passover was a time of nationalistic fervor. Could this man, Jesus, be the Messiah, the messianic liberator that we long to for? That king like David who will rise up and help us overthrow Rome. Surely, surely anyone who can raise someone from the dead can do this. So let's get behind him. This is our moment. This is the time, you see. And so a great crowd heard he was coming from Bethany. Indeed, he was daring to come to Jerusalem, so they came out of Jerusalem. A crowd was with Jesus from Bethany who had gone to see Lazarus. So there's a crowd coming with Jesus and a, a crowd coming out from Jerusalem. You can imagine it was all a buzz. And they came out waving these palm branches. And Matthew notes in his account that some were putting their cloaks on the road in front uh, of Jesus as he approached well, by this point in time, the, the palm branches was a symbol of Jewish nationalistic hope. Um, what I mean by that, it was more like a flag than it was some sort of spiritual statement. Uh, so at 164, 165 B.C., uh, two men, uh, uh, Jacob, uh, Judas, and Simon, Maccabeus, had led a revolt against Rome and had, excuse me, against Syria. And, and they had driven out uh, the, those who came into the temple. And so they waved palm branches then, and, and that became a symbol of Jewish national hope when they uh, rededicated the temple at that time. And uh, rebels, Jewish rebels, would print palm branches on coins uh, during certain uh, uprisings against Rome. And so a palm branch was a political symbol. 
And I want you to see that. This was more like, you imagine, if you would, a great political rally here in the States, and everyone's waving the stars and stripes, you see. And the people are shouting, not Hosanna, but USA, USA. And somewhere in the corner, there's a little Bible they'll use later to swear the candidate in, you know. This was a political event with minor religious connotations in the hearts of these people who went out there. They come out crying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're singing from Psalm 118. Hosanna is that transliteration of word that simply means save now. Save now. It could be sung as a prayer or, or as, as an expression of praise. The Psalm 118 was the, the last of what's called the Hallel Psalms a group of psalms that the pilgrims would sing, Jewish pilgrims would sing as they made their way up to Jerusalem before one of these great feasts, including Passover. And Psalm 118 was that last psalm. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord as they welcome the pilgrims traveling. But they add even the king of Israel, which is not part of that psalm. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And who comes today in the name of the Lord? Even the king of Israel. And so they are clearly wanting to crown him, to, to enthrone him, and to recognize him publicly in the face of Rome that he is the king of the Jews, the messianic king like the son of David, the king of Psalm 2, you know, the king who will crush the nations and so forth. Now, I ask you, is there some truth in what they're saying. Absolutely there is. There's a lot of truth in what they were saying and singing. He is the king, and they are right to be enthusiastic, but for the wrong reasons. Heat without light, zeal without understanding. In many a place on this globe, this the same thing is happening. People like this, like you and me, gathered, and there's enthusiasm without understanding, heat without light. Things aren't what they seem then when you look at it <laughs> on what's really taking place on that day. For them, this is really a political event with minor religious implication. It is a sign not of their faith, but of their hardness of heart and unbelief. For they rejected the righteousness of God. That righteousness which comes in Christ to us as a, a rescue, as a gift. They rejected that. They did not hail him as the servant king, the king who came to be the suffering servant who would lay down his life for their sin, you see. Who would fulfill all righteousness on their behalf because they did not see their sin and their separation from God and rebellion as their biggest problem. They saw Rome as their biggest problem. And so they didn't hail him as the Savior. They hailed him as a political liberator. They saw in him someone to use for their 
desires. And there's many a person in a pew who views Jesus in that same sort of light. So Jerusalem was abuzz, celebrating the arrival of its king, but it appears that basically everyone had a misconception, a misunderstanding of his identity, including the disciples, you know. No one really knew at the moment or understood what was happening or who he was or what he was coming to do. He is the king. And Pilate would ask the question, are you a king? And he says, you say well that I am a king, right? But my kingdom is not of this world. And no one understood that at that moment, that he came as the servant king. He is Christ, the king, but he's also Christ, which means Messiah, God's anointed one, Christ, the suffering servant of the prophecies of Isaiah and and others. And in one person, prophet, priest, and king united in one person. And they didn't see this. They didn't see this as his identity. And so what's all important here is who do you think he is? What a... Because who you think he is will shape your expectations of what he is to be in your life. And John wrote this gospel, he said, and he gave accounts like these that you may believe, that you may understand who he is. That he closes a gospel near the end. Remember John chapter 20, verse 31. These have been written. These have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the King, the promised one, the Son of of God, and in believing, you might have life in his name, so you understand that who you think him to be is a matter of life and death. And so on that day, there was great confusion, Um, and that's the great danger, of course, of false gospels, because who you think he is will shape what your expectations are. That is the travesty, for example, of the prosperity gospel, that he's just been sent into the world to make you rich and happy. He is the servant king of Palm Sunday. So let's look at both of those aspects. He is the king. And John, in his account alone, uh, he demonstrates, and we'll bring in some others, but that he is king primarily through the fulfilled prophecies that took place on that day and through his awareness and control of the circumstances. That is, Jesus' awareness and control of the circumstances. So he is demonstrated to be the king through the fulfilled prophecies of that day. And John mentions two directly. He mentions, of course, First Psalm 118, when he says that the people were singing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is the Part of Psalm 118, the last of the Hallel Psalms, as I mentioned, in verses 25 and 26, it says, Blessed is he who, or save us, Hosanna, we pray, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. That's from Psalm 118. And Jesus saw this as applying to himself. In fact, the Jews believed this to be a messianic psalm. And Jesus took that psalm to himself. He quoted the verses right above the verses that were sung that day to him. And that is from verses 22 and 23. 
the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us, believers, rejoice and be glad in it. What irony. There it is. They were singing Psalm 118, Hosanna, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus is thinking the stone (laughs) that the builders rejected is the chief cornerstone. This is the day the Lord has made. As he entered into Jerusalem, he fulfilled that prophecy. Amazing. And and then, of course, there's the prophecy of of Zechariah because uh, he he mentions it directly, that is, in... um, John does there in verse 14 and 15. It says, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. He says very little, uh, just as is written. He's quoting from Zechariah 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The full prophecy reads like this, slightly different in Zechariah. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's the only thing that John changes there. It could be he conflates it with another prophecy from Zephaniah. So instead of rejoice, it's fear not, is what John has written. But it says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Was that happening on that day? Absolutely. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he goes on. I'll read a little bit later. But uh, that's, that's the, what John was referring to when he wrote what he wrote. And not only did this event on Palm Sunday fulfill the verbal details of that prophecy, but really the prophecy displays in a visual way when Jesus fulfilled it the, the essential nature of his kingdom. He comes humble, riding on a donkey's colt. He brings righteousness. Later in the, pa- in the passage of Zechariah, he brings, he shall seek peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea, and so forth. Uh, Jesus is coming humbly into Jerusalem. Now, donkeys, uh, you've probably heard, if you've been a Christian for Long enough, you've heard different views on the donkey. Um, I'll just say this much, okay? And that is this, that yes, there was a time when uh, conquerors were known to ride on a donkey, but the time of Christ, that was not the case. They rode war horses, right? They would lead in the front, the conqueror on a steed, and have behind them the spoils of battle and so forth, uh, that had been the culture for hundreds of years. So donkeys were ridden then by those who were seeking to make peace, like priests or other representatives would come in riding on a donkey rather than on a steed. Uh, he is the prince of peace. He doesn't come in uh, with military power. His dominion, his dominion, his kingdom does not rest on military power but on on meekness and his humble submission to the Father's eternal plan for the Son to take upon himself the sins of his people. That's how his kingdom comes. 
He comes then as a humble servant king, and he brings peace between God and man and salvation. That is his first coming. The second coming, he comes on a white steed. <laughs> but in this first coming, he comes like this, gentle, humble. And that's why he told Pilate what he told him. You know, if, I, if my kingdom were of this world, I mean, I could, if I, I wanted to, I could ask my father, and he could send me two legions of angels, and we'd be done, you know. Uh, but, uh, uh, but my kingdom's not of this world. Uh, you don't understand it. The kingdom of God now is here. It's been here since the king arrived. It's here in a spiritual form in the sense of the rule of Christ and the lives and hearts of his people who do cover the world. And it's interesting that there's another uh, prophecy that is not mentioned here, but it's very similar, and it fulfills that as well. Genesis 49, 10, 11 there speaks of a ruler who will come from Judah who will command the obedience of the nations who also, interestingly enough, prophetically comes on a donkey. On a donkey's colt, that is. So, so Jesus demonstrates that he is the king, or John helps us see that he is the Messiah, the Messianic king through fulfilled prophecies, but also through the Lord's control of the circumstances, and he's aware of all this. That's what I mean. Listen, with all this tension in the air about Jesus, and is he coming in, and there's a plot to kill him and to arrest him, and they want to kill Lazarus as well, and up to this point, Jesus' tendency has almost always been in times like this to withdraw right, to withdraw. So with all of that, you would expect, a reader would expect that the same thing's about to happen, but he doesn't, you see. He doesn't. In John's gospel, this is the dramatic turning point. This is the episode that changes the direction. Up to this point, people refer to the gospel of John as the book of signs, but from here on, then, it's the book of the passion. Because now he slows down and spends almost the rest of his book on that, the events of that last week, you see. This is the episode. Up to this point, John has recorded three times Jesus saying that my hour has not yet come, or this is not my hour, and now the hour has come. That's what we were told there, right? Uh, in verse 22, the hour, the time has come for him to enter into that great great suffering that would be an atonement for sin. You see. His great victory which will come through the cross. And so he uh, is in control. The events of the Passion Week are all set in motion by Jesus. Up to this point they tried to capture him several times and he eluded them. So they tried to make him king. Others had earlier but it wasn't his time and he eluded them. Now when they, when they don't want him, uh, when the, when the uh, Sanhedrin doesn't want to create a stir, Jesus says, no, it's time to create a stir. <laughs> He's in control. He enters Jerusalem on his timing. The Sanhedrin did not want this big scene at Passover, but Jesus forces the issue. He forces the issue. Um, he will die on the Father's schedule. And He's aware he will be crucified at the end of that week when the Passover lambs are being slaughtered. As Paul said, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. 
He would arrange it. He would make sure of it. He was in control. And Jesus also shows that he's aware and in control of the circumstances under the Father's will uh, by not only arranging to enter when he came in, but by arranging to ride on the donkey's colt. John doesn't say much about it, you know, but Matthew and, and Mark, but especially Matthew, records all sorts of details. You know the story. Go down there. They'll tell you. Well, they'll ask you, why are you taking the colt? You say, my master. Listen, gospel writers were very picky about what they wrote. You know, when you write on deer skin or on parchment, uh, you only choose so many details. Why would they put five, six verses about this donkey? You know, how he got the donkey. You're supposed to pick up on that and say, if they're choosy about details, why so many verses on a donkey? Because it's important. And what's important is that Jesus arranged for it when everyone else around him was clueless, had no idea what was going on, had no idea that Zechariah 9 was being fulfilled in their midst. What would have some of the disciples thought? Why are we getting a donkey? What's, you know, who knows what they were thinking? But Matthew, John, and Mark, they, they help us understand that he was aware. He was aware and in control. And he rides on a donkey's colt that had never been ridden. You try riding an animal that's never been ridden. And there's no problem, is there? And so we're, we're to understand what, I think part, you understand that he is the king who comes, who's in control of the circumstances. Uh, Acts chapter 4, 27 sums it up very well in a very Trinitarian fashion. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Yeah, they were all there. What did they do? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Christ, our Passover, would be sacrificed during the hour of the sacrifice. That he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey's fold. That he would be hailed as the king from Psalm 118 by people who have no understanding. This is the day the Lord has made. <laughs> I will rejoice in it and be glad. Can you imagine Jesus thinking that? He was human, obviously. obviously. He's the man Christ Jesus, and we're told in another account he also wept when he came into Jerusalem, knowing their hardness of heart. Or perhaps we should think of what... He says in John chapter 10 when Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. Yes, he's the king. And I have authority to take it up again. Yes, he's the king. And this charge I've received from my Father, he says. So on that day, Jesus, the King, enters Jerusalem. He truly is 
the son of David, the king. This was not a Psalm 2 moment per se, but, but it was a moment where the king was about to serve the father's plan. He was in control. And I think nothing gives believers greater comfort when life is a mess or there are problems or things are spinning uh, crazily in our culture. Nothing gives us more comfort than knowing what? That he is still reigning. He is still Lord. He is still arranging the minute details of that even touch a donkey. <laughs> well, then you can be assured that he's arranging the details of your life as well. But he's not just the king, he is the servant king. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He is the servant king. And John shows us in his gospel that he is the servant in two capacities. He's a servant king for all the nations, not just Jewish nationalistic thinking, you see. And he's a servant king who conquers by dying. First of all, he's a servant for all the nations. You know, it's very interesting. If you look at verse 20, it says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. The arrival of Greeks triggers something. Triggers something in Jesus because he responds, The hour has come. The arrival of Greeks. You know, the Bible very seldom mentions Greeks directly. I mean, they're part of Gentiles, yes, but Greeks directly. Very seldom does the Bible mention Greeks. You know where else it does mention Greece? In the prophet of Zechariah chapter 9 of the king who comes in riding in on a donkey. When you read the... You keep reading the prophecy of Zechariah. It says that this one who's coming will speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and his sons, the sons of Zion, will overcome the sons of Greece. Jesus hears there's some Greeks who are here and it's almost as if it triggers in his mind the time of preaching the gospel to the Jews has come to an end. It's the hour has come now to reach the nations. When I am lifted up, he says later in John that I didn't read, right? I will draw all men to myself, meaning men from all places, including Greeks. It's an interesting detail that John, that John gives us, you see. And, it, and what's he say about that? He says that the implication here uh, later when Jesus says that, uh, when I'm raised up, I will bring all men to myself. The implication is that he is fulfilling the work of the servant who would reach all the nations and bring peace to all peoples. You know, the Isaiah, uh, prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 49, verse 6, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. That's too small a thing. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So Jesus says the hours come for him to gather the sheep he has from other folds. And beloved, that includes you and me. It's been 2,000 years and he is reaching his sheep 
from other folds and bringing them into the one family of God. He's also the servant king uh, who conquers by dying. Not only is he the servant king of all peoples, not just Jewish uh, thinking, but he is the servant king who conquers by dying. Because Jesus makes the interesting statement. He says, find my, my place here, verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. To be glorified. That's He's summing up what he's about to do as being glorified. Now, when Jesus talks about being glorified, he may, in the ultimate sense, be speaking about returning to the glory he had with the Father before an eternity passed when he was the eternal Son. And he will pray about that in John 17, 5. But now, you see, we're talking about the God-man, Jesus, the God-man. And for him to be glorified, it, it involves that hour, that hour, that time of suffering. The way for he will be glorified is through the cross by fulfilling the Father's will uh, through humility and willfully and then being buried and raised from the dead. The events of the end of the Passion Week. That will be the glorification of Jesus John would say, in the, he, as he opened his gospel, when he talked about Jesus as the light who came into the world, he said, we beheld his glory. Glory, and he says, full of grace and truth. And the cross, the cross, though it sounds to some like a display of weakness to the unbeliever, the cross was the greatest display of the glory of the grace of God to give His Son for sinners like you and me and those who were rejecting Him on that day. The cross, says Paul, is the wisdom of God. The cross is the power of God. Through the cross, He makes peace between a holy, eternal God and sinners like you and me. Through the cross, He makes propitiation. He, he absorbs the wrath of God that you and I deserve. Through the cross, you see, we see the glory of the love of God who gave His Son to that end. It was Father's will to crush Him and put Him through that, you see. So, He's a servant king who conquers by dying, and He gives insight into the spiritual significance of His death in verse 24. He makes it clear through this parable of the seed. Truly, truly, and you've, most of you are Christian long enough to know that when you hear truly, truly, you're supposed to pay really close attention. I say to you, this is the servant king speaking, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, you see. He's explaining the necessity of his death, the spiritual significance of his death through this parable, right? He's explaining how he, the servant king, is to be the savior of the nations, right? The savior of the worlds, the peoples. If there's to be a harvest of all the peoples, then the seed must first die. It must be buried. It will lose its husk, be buried, and it will die. But then new life will come from it, you see. There will be a great harvest. And so this is the principle, not only in nature, but it's the principle 
people in the kingdom of God, is what Jesus is saying. The seed gives up its own life, and new life comes in an abundant harvest. By his death will come the fruit of a great harvest of a people which he purchased for God with his blood from every nation, tribe, and tongue, you see. And that's what he's alluding to. That's what he's explaining here. In fact, Paul, when he refers to Jesus' resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he calls Christ's resurrection the first fruits, you see, the first fruits of a great harvest. And verse 32 here in chapter 12, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people, he means all peoples, to myself. In Hebrews chapter 2, the author says that he tasted death for everyone that he may bring many sons to glory. That's all of us. That's you included. See. People from all nations. And yeah, prophet Isaiah says that through his suffering, he will have the servant. He will justify many, many through the sacrifice he makes as the righteous one. So he is a king. He's a servant king, a servant king for all peoples, not just Israel. And he is a servant king who conquers through his substitutionary atoning death. No one in the crowd understood that. Zeal without understanding. And then Jesus makes application here. And that is that his death is a pattern for you and me. His death is a pattern for all disciples, all who will follow him. He alone, he alone is the substitute who atones for sin. He alone fulfills all righteousness by dying, being that seed. But, but, there is an analogous principle here. And that analogous principle is that life comes through death for everyone. Not just the Savior. What does he say when he describes that? Whoever loses his life, excuse me, whoever loves his life, that means loves his life here above anything and will therefore won't come to Christ, actually loses it. But whoever hates this life, or here, meaning comparatively, you don't cling to this world, will keep it. Will keep it for eternal life. The principle is life comes through death. Those who follow Christ must die to themselves if they are to receive eternal life. And Jesus repeatedly says this, recorded in Matthew and Luke, who take more time with this principle than John does, but um, they write about picking our, that Jesus said we must pick up our cross daily and follow him. We must die to ourselves that he may even divide uh, us from family members. In other words, fruitfulness is costly. Eternal life is free, but it has implications. It comes at a cost in this world, and the Christian is to live by this principle. We must enter eternal life understanding this. Now, at first, this sounds, it sounds impossible, and, and it should on one level, because it is, right, utterly for you and me to just simply live our life utterly every moment for God, you know? It's an impossible thing. But later, you see, after the resurrection, it becomes clear that the capacity to follow Jesus in a life of growing selflessness 
is the result of the new life that he gives us, you see. And this new life comes by the Holy Spirit who is given to all who believe in him, you see. That's the total picture. That's the whole picture. In other words, we give up our life when we are given new life. It will come from him. In other words, picking up your cross or dying to this life is not a work to do in order to be received by God. It's not a meritorious work, but it is a cost that you must weigh at the point of decision. Salvation is free. But it will cost you everything. And the capacity to begin to walk in this way will be given to you in the new life of the Holy Spirit who enables us to walk after the Lord. And that, of course, is the life of discipleship. Well, that sounds like a, a steep price. It will cost many of these apostles what their life, execution, and so forth. But the compensation is overwhelming. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, this sounds almost incomprehensible, the Father will honor him. You think of that. What does it mean? It means that we will be where he is. It means that to follow Christ, to enter the kingdom through this principle that life comes through death, faith in Christ, die to yourself, we will be glorified with him. We will share in his glorification as the Son of God in the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth. Paul says we become heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him that we may also be glorified with him. We will share in eternity. And then he says, and the Father will honor him. Wow, that's amazing. A lot of ministry, a lot of service of Christ in your lives comes without honor in this world. Comes without recognition. Comes without thank yous. It goes unnoticed. But if you serve him, the, the servant king, he will honor you, the father. And what's that mean? It means that the father will vindicate your decision to follow Jesus and demonstrate it to be what it was. And it will glorify the Son, the Father, the Holy Spirit. What looks like foolishness to the world now in your decisions to serve and follow Him is going to bring glory into eternity and the honor of the Father in this life and in the next. Well, that's it. In all this, you know what? It makes very clear what? It makes this very clear. The consequences resulting from who you think Jesus is and how you respond to him. Who is this man, Jesus of Nazareth? As I was concluding my study this week, got some posts from a high school friend. Like I haven't heard of him in I don't know how many decades, you know. And it was a photo 
mocking Christ. I mean, he knows I'm a minister. And I received that, and I, I went through like three quick emotions, you know. The first one was that of the Pharisees, a plot to kill him. And then, <laughs> and then that one went away, and it was a plot to arrest him. <laughs> and it took, it took some heart breakdown from the Holy Spirit to get to the point where I could be like Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and thinking, you have no idea. But here's the question. Who do you say that he is this morning? That's the question. Who is he to you? You think that Jesus has let you down becoming a Christian? That may, that may mean that you thought he was someone else <laughs> other than your Lord. <laughs> Well, let's pray and worship and go to the table. And we have more things to do today. We exalt your holy name, Lord. We thank you, God, for the power of the gospel in our lives. We pray you help us to magnify your name. As we finish in song, Lord, and the the table and and the, the dedication of this new church in Venetia, Lord, meet us with the power of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name.